Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps, our full-length interview with adventure pilot Amanda J. Harrison. You'd have heard a clip of her interview in our episode all about Amy Johnson and just last year, Amanda attempted to emulate Amy's flight from London to Australia. Her story is quite amazing. So here is the full interview I did with Amanda in a hangar in Duxford last October. This is Top Landing Gear. So enjoy the interview, and remember, if you can subscribe and leave a review, that would be fantastic. Well, I'm in Hangar 2 at Duxford with a very special guest this week, Amanda Harrison. Amanda, thank you so much for talking to us on Top Landing Gear, our new aviation podcast. Thank you very much, Rob. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, the honour and the privilege is ours. We're standing in front of your beautiful green tiger moth. Who goes by the name of? She goes by the name of Ivy Axan. She has two names, of course, a first name and a second name. Ivy was my owl that I looked after for years and years and years. Owl? Owl. As in yeah, a bird? As, as in an injured bird of prey. So <laughs> I used to look after injured birds of prey. So she was my owl. And then, of course, Axan is her registration. So all aeroplanes tend to be referred to as their registration. And sometimes you can make a name out of that, but this one, you just read it, Axan. Can't really make a sort of name out of it. No, but she is a beauty. And, and you own this, I own this piece of history. The, the, this piece of uh, history that needs a bit of uh, tender, loving care at the moment, yes. Uh, yes, I, I would say I'm a guardian of it. Because when you, when you take on one of these aeroplanes, yes, you own it, but you know that you're actually looking after it for the next generation, of course, because that is what these aeroplanes need to do. They need yeah. to teach the generations what happened and how they helped yeah. and then move on. So I know I'm just her guardian, hopefully for a few more years. I would hope so. And the reason she is sitting here looking resplendent, but actually she's not terribly well. She was in the process yes. of taking you all the way from London to Darwin in, in honor of Amy Johnson's amazing flight from 1930. And you got a long way, but then had to turn back. Yes, I managed to get to Beirut. That's amazing. Uh, Amy got to Syria, so she landed in Aleppo, which I decided not to. <laughs> I know I've got a lot of guts, but I haven't got quite that many guts. So I landed in Beirut, which the security guy said, you'll love it in Beirut, it's a great place. And it was, it was amazing. Everybody has to go to Beirut, it's just this amazing place. And then that was when the Iranian waters were really kicking off, the Pakistan and Indian border were closing. I know I could have got through the Pakistan-Indian border with enough time, mm. but the Iranian waters, unfortunately, was going to be a real, real problem for me because I've only got 420 miles range and I got all my fuel stationed of down course. from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, down to UAE, down to Dubai. So it was a real problem. So I sat there for a whole day feeling really sorry for myself in the fact of what am I going to do? And the security guys are going, we're not going to be able to come and get you. This is not safe. You have to make a decision of whether you ship her around to India, whether you carry on like that. Do you, you know, so there was all these kind of things. Could I do another route? So I looked at lots of other routes. I looked at shipping it, but then I'm self-funded. I don't have a massive, you know, I don't have a, a big sponsor. So therefore, if I'd shipped her, then that's, you know, that might have then 
where would I get the money for the next part of the trip? So it was all of those decisions. And Beirut was the most best place, of course, to be feeling sorry for yourself, because you can't <laughs> feel sorry for yourself for five minutes in Beirut, because they have a war in living memory. Yeah. They know how to party. <laughs> and it was the end of Ramadan. <laughs> so I was being invited out to all these amazing parties and these amazing people were, you know, the breast cancer ladies, the empowerment for women and, and children out there were inviting me out, the dyslexic side of things. Everything that I was promoting, there was somebody that was taking me out to dinner and helping me, wow. and I was helping them. So it was just this amazing place. So I thought, right, okay, let's call it quits, because I've only got so many, so much money, and then fly her back and start again when, A, when the weather's good, because also, <laughs> I'd hit the worst weather across yeah. Europe for 50 years, and then I was hitting the hottest weather for 65 years. I th I'd obviously angered the gods somewhere, <laughs> hadn't I? So therefore, I could, okay, I can take a hint. So I thought, right, I'll fly back. And that's when the other problems started. So yes, Beirut. The other problems being the problems with the aeroplane? Yes, the problems with the aeroplane. So I then flew her back across the Mediterranean. So I think I'm probably... Well, that's a the, big flight. That's a big in flight. In a tiger mask, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes. So I did five hours across from Rhodes to Cyprus and then two hours across from Cyprus to Beirut. Then I did the two hours back again and the five hours back again. So I've got 14 hours cumulatively Whoa. over the Mediterranean in a tiger moth. I can't prove it, but I think, I'm, I think that's a record. Uh, that's pretty, I that's would pretty, think that's getting unique. That's I unique. think a chap called Roland Garros, after whom the French tennis tournament is... Name, yes. French Open. He was the first person, wasn't he, to fly across the Mediterranean? Yes, yes, I remember that vaguely, yes. Well, it was before yes. your time. But he, he did, um, and what was his aeroplane? I can't remember. Oh, yes. no, oh yeah. it was a Sonier, I think, S-A-U-L-N-I-E-R, I think. But it's worth uh, telling our listeners why we mentioned tennis with a bit of a oh, smile yes, on our face, because yes. this is our connection, Yes. is that you are the cousin of the great Joe Dury, the former British tennis number one, yes. who I've been lucky enough to work with over the years um, on Eurosport and the BBC covering tennis. Yes. Isn't that a lovely connection? I know, I know. When Joe said Rob Curling wants to do a podcast with you, I was kind of like, wow. <laughs> And then I thought, well, no, of course, because it's tennis, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I love that connection. But yeah, going across the Mediterranean in a tiger moth twice is, is great. But then yes. you didn't get much further. I didn't get much further. I got back to Rhodes and then I had a second engine failure. So I'd had a partial engine failure in Rhodes, which I knew I was going to have. If you take one of these aeroplanes, she's 72 years old. She's, she's going to have a bit of a problem at some point in time because... She's authentic, you know, the aeroplane bits, yes, they've been refashioned and remoulded, but the, she is essentially 72 yeah. years old. So she'd had, uh, she'd blown her um, cylinder head the first time I landed in Rhodes, which is fine. I knew that was going to happen somewhere along the oh, trip. Yes, because everybody who flies tigers blows a cylinder head somewhere <laughs> along their trips. So I knew that. So and, that's not, and that's not necessarily catastrophic. No, no, no not no. at all. You take, you take the cylinder head off and you uh, put a new one on and away you go. I mean, it sounds very simple. It, it took us a few <laughs> hours to do that. There was three of us doing that. And again, this is it. It's, it's a very solo, very small operation, mine mm. is, because there was one engineer, my other half and me, all, all battling with screwdrivers and that. I'm, I'm the one that holds all the equipment and just passes the, <laughs> passes the equipment very wise. To, uh, to people. So, yes, yeah, so we, yeah. uh, Matt came out, the engineer from Aircraft Restoration Company, flew out with a cylinder head. We put the new one on and away I went. And it went beautifully for another 14 hours. That's interesting. Do you want Jets. To... Yes. No, we'll carry on. Oh, okay. We're in the airfield. This oh, is fine. Okay. It's lovely, isn't I'm it? Very exciting. What do you think it is? I don't know. What do you think it is? Pocahunter? Vampire? 
Provost. Provost. Yes. Provost. Okay. Not that exciting. No. Okay. <laughs> but I'd still like to fly okay. it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So I then got to back to Rhodes and had another engine failure, unfortunately. And this time I couldn't. So when I opened the cowling last time, you could see where the other cylinder head had burnt out. You could see the spark plugs. You could see the problem. This time when I opened the cowling, there wasn't an actual problem to look at which makes it even worse because then you've got to take the engine apart to find it and of course in roads they weren't really very very um, happy with me taking my engine apart and also it's outside there was no hangers Gosh. so that's when I had to make the decision to ship her back which was yeah again another day of feeling sorry for myself. Yeah that was a bit of a double whammy so you've been yeah. stopped by the political situation yes. you're on your way back yes. and you ha can't even get home in your get home. lovely tiger who has now arrived home with you. Yes. How did she get back? She got back in a container so I stayed out there the engineer came out we together we, we took it apart again i was i was then then holding the bits that he was giving me as he's taking it apart the, the wonderful engineer matt and we took it apart packed it in the container and then she went on a, a wonderful cruise around the mediterranean and finally ended up <laughs> not necessarily in the right no, direction no, no she went to turkey first and then came all the way down and then went to malta and all over the place because you can watch ships tracking just like you can watch yeah, me being tracked. i didn't realize that yeah, yeah i didn't realize that either so yeah so and then she eventually ended up back and we've re-put it back together so she's now together and now because the political situation is still difficult, yes. I'm going to take the time out to actually see what's going on in the engine. Yeah. So the engine at the moment is in intensive care, it's yeah. being taken apart, and the surgeons are in there trying to find out what the problem is. So let's rewind then, all the way back to, to the beginning, and ask you what made you think that this was ever going to be a good idea? What was your inspiration for wanting to retrace that route that Amy Johnson set back in 1930? Yes. Uh, you, you say that and you think, no, it's not a good idea. And at certain points, I also thought, what on earth am I doing? But now when I look back at it, I go, wow, I've, I've lived that life. Amy Johnson was such an amazing person because I, I read about, when I fell in love, I managed to get flights in a tiger moth and I fell in love with them. And then I started reading about all the amazing pioneers in the 1930s. Sir Alex Henshaw, Lady Mary Heath, yes. Lady Mildred Bruce, the, the Duchess. And there's one thing in common with all of them, sir, lady, duchess, they've all got lots of money. They've all got support aeroplanes. They've all got lots of people to arrange all their organization for them. So yeah. I thought, okay, that's a lovely story, but I can't do it. And then I read Amy Johnson and wow, my mind just exploded because she was middle-class. She didn't have any money behind her. She had to get a job. She was the first female engineer, yeah. aeronautical engineer in this country. She had a job, she had to, get her dad to help her with this, the, um, buying the aircraft. She bought a second-hand aircraft and she got sponsorship. And then she did speaking as a job afterwards oh. to earn money. Now, hasn't so, someone else also gone on to speaking engagements? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to that later as well, because we'll I think you're later. an award winner. I am, God, twice. Many congratulations. <laughs> so Amy Johnson has been your yes. inspiration across the board. Across the board, ways. yes. She was the engineer and the pilot, and also that she made a living out of this and she made a very successful living out of this and this was the point so I suddenly thought wow if she can do it I can do it and this is what I say in my dyslexia side of things if I can do it you can do it you don't have to fly across the Mediterranean I'm saying here yeah. but whatever your dream is don't just put it away and think you can't do it because 
I'm, all I am is perspiration. Seriously. <laughs> There's 1% inspiration and 99% blood, sweat and tears. It is the Churchill thing. It is really. Let's talk then about this dyslexia side of things. Yep. Explain that because I understand that school was difficult for you yep. because you were severely dyslexic. Yes. Is, that, is that right? Yes, yes. So the words move around all the time. I still have yellow. Uh, I've even got yellow on my iPad to stop the words moving. So that makes it quite difficult to read and think how, how does that work? people are lazy because when the colors puts it on it tends to do in, in your in your eyes it, it less contrast wow. so the reason we have white on black is because it's the biggest contrast yes. and for the majority of people that's the easiest way yes. for a different contrast but for di most dyslexics they need less contrast so that you're not looking into a sunset I describe looking at white on black as looking into a sunset. So when you put your sunglasses on, you can read a bit better. Gosh. So yes, yeah, school was very difficult for me. I came out of school at the age of 15 with no results to sort of show for. Mm. Didn't know what I was going to do. And then throughout the years, fortunately my mum and dad were absolutely amazing people and they encouraged me. My mum dragged me along to night school to redo my English. And I've since then done all kinds of part-time study and everything, and I'm now the proud owner of a BA Honours degree. Wow. I've got my commercial pilot's licence, yes. and I'm still going on to study. And I got that bug as soon as I could figure out how I could read, just by putting yellow over it. I suddenly thought, wow, I can read, so therefore I can study. And it's finding that in to it, probably in tennis, you know, finding, oh, I need to hold the racket just a slightly yes. twist, and then I can hit the ball much better. It's that kind of thing, and it was that aha moment. But yes, dyslexia doesn't make it easy in this world because this world is literal, of course. The whole of this world is literal. Mm. But if you look back in time, a lot of our leaders were dyslexic. Were they? And still a lot of our leaders today are dyslexic because we work in pictures. So oh, our brain works in pictures and we yeah. can work outside the box. So when I had problems all the way down here and solving the problems, I never think that I can't do something. I'm just doing it in the wrong way. I need to do it in a different way. How does that affect, particularly I'm thinking, planning charts and planning your route if you still, I mean, dyslexia is with you for forever, is it? Or it yes. It's a, but it's at a lesser level now than it was? I, it, no, it, dyslexia no. is a way that your brain operates. So it's like being le left-handed or right-handed or yeah. colorblind. It's just the way your brain right, operates. Okay. And I wouldn't change that now because I love the way my brain operates. Because reading charts and reading maps for yeah. me, because they're colors and because they follow contours and all that kind of thing, is so easy for me. So reading those kind of things is my forte, if you will, rather than reading the instructions of how to do it. What about numbers like headings and bearings and, and radio frequencies and so on. Is I there can a risk get them all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Is that an issue? It isn't an issue if you write them down beforehand. Oh, right. So what I did... If you write them down correctly. Though. If you write them down correctly, yes. Fortunately, ATC will just keep <laughs> on at you until you get the right one. They just keep telling you, no, 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 one, two, three, decimal six, one, two, three, decimal seven. No, 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 one, two, three, decimal six. And they will just keep redoing it until they until you get the right uh, frequency. Wow, so it hasn't been a problem for you for, in terms of flying? I would say it helps my flying because what it does is it gives me spatial awareness. Now, what would you rather have? You'd rather have your pilot with great spatial awareness, knowing where all the other airplanes are, knowing where I am in the sky in relation to the mountains, rather than being able to read the checklist perfectly. Oh, tricky question. Then. I think I'll go with you. I, I <laughs> like you your go. version. There you go. That's incredible. 
Right. So that's the. So you were supporting dyslexia on, on yes. the way around in terms yes. of what you're raising the profile of it. Raising or? the profile. And one beautiful episode happened when I landed in Sibiu. Uh, I'd already been uh, contacted. Remind us uh, which country. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, sorry. Romania. Thank you. Which again, Amy had. Amy had just flown over Romania, so she'd gone from Vienna to Istanbul. But I didn't have the range. She had a slightly. She had the better version of. She had a, a gypsy moth. She had a gypsy moth, yeah. which was the previous version of this. But I couldn't afford a gypsy moth because there was only a few of those flying. Where there's hundreds of these flying, so mm. there's more spares for them. And I, as I say, I couldn't afford that one. So, um, and and she flew from Vienna to Istanbul. I had to go have more stops and Romania was an amazing place because they said oh no you've got to come to Sibiu because they've got a gastronomical event on and I was kind of like no 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 wait and balance wait and balance here <laughs> but I flew into Sibiu which I've never even known about and it was this again what a wonderful place they're just trying to get out from a sort of slightly challenging government let's put it that way and they're making the best of it and this mum had contacted me beforehand and said my daughter's dyslexic she's struggling at school can she meet you she that would really help her. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she came along, and I still get emotional about it. She came along because she'd, she'd drawn me this beautiful picture of me in the tiger moth. Oh, lovely. I'll show you that later. It's an absolutely beautiful, and it's really good picture for a seven-year-old girl, uh, Irina, and she was just lovely. And I said, look, you're gonna succeed. It's gonna take hard work, because it takes hard work for dyslexics, but it takes hard work to be a tennis professional. Mm. So mm. therefore, if you put in the work, you will succeed. Yeah. So that was just, lovely and in Beirut again they've got this amazing place where they're bringing all the children in for all the different um, dyslexia dyspraxia yeah. all the different kind of things and they're helping them and of course Arabic is quite a difficult language to read and they even have more challenges because their Lebanese language is not written down as it is spoken <laughs> so they speak it differently to they write it <laughs> so that's even more difficult so your planning wasn't merely and I say that, you know, with tongue in cheek, planning your, your route and your stops. It was planning who you were going to meet up with at the, each yes. of those stops, how you were going to help people promote yes. dyslexia awareness and so on. Yes. Uh, so it must have taken an age for you to do all this. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Please, I need, I need some kind of sponsor or brand ambassador because this was the problem, the operation side of things got completely out of hand, didn't it? My other half is standing here, and me and my other half were the operations team. There was just two of us. Mm. And I really don't, don't say to people, go out and do this kind of flight without more people helping you on the operations side, because yes, we were trying to, I think we were trying to too do much, really. Yeah. But because we had all the flight plans, I filed all my flight plans, you know, booked all the hotels, all the operations side of it, and trying to get, trying to get this aeroplane, which cannot fly in bad weather, on time at the right place yeah. was getting to be difficult. And of course I was, you know, I had a bird strike in Vienna. There was weather all over the place. It was much worse than it was forecast. So therefore I had to stop and mm. divert. So I was then late for, for the things turning up. So yeah, slightly difficult. I suppose at least Amy had actually planned your route for you. Yes. So all you had to do was really follow that. Yes. <laughs> and she had actually, also planned her fuel stops, I think, in, yes. in advance, hadn't she? So, yes. and if you think back, the early days of aviation, that she would have been one of the first people to have had to thought how on earth you're going to plan a, yes. a long-range flight like that yes. with your fuel stops and yes. where those fuel stops are going to have to be. But you had the added 
problem of, of political situations and weather, of course. So did you also have to plan diversionary stops as well? Oh yes, I mean whenever you take off in an aeroplane you've always got the planning of a diversion. So every commercial flight that takes off have normally got two diversions yeah. planned. And every time we take off in the Tiger we've got every single field available in England is a diversion. <laughs> so yes, I had got diversions planned along the route, of course, and that gets difficult when you have to then bring the fuel from the place that you were trying to get to down to where exactly. you've actually landed. Yeah. Um, it didn't, that was okay, because where I diverted to Saarbrück and they had actually got the right kind of fuel, so they, I could top up a little bit and then go to Mannheim, where they had the fuel for me. But yes, all of that was difficult. When Amy did it, she had Sir Humphrey Wakefield who gifted her the oil and the fuel and, and got them stationed in all the places. Could you not have got in touch with Sir Humphrey? I did. And Sir Humphrey Wakefield, you're going to love this. Go on. Sir Humphrey Wakefield has sent me a beautiful letter saying... Um, I mean, he still exists. He does. He's, I think he's in his 90s. He, wow. He, he fell off his horse and broke his you know, wrist and things. And, he, and here's the spooky thing. So while I was buying, working for and buying the Tiger Moth, my dad was building the remote control model of the Waterbird, which is the String and Fabric first aeroplane that flew, float plane that flew in this country in 1911. And I was buying this and he was doing that and neither of us were telling one another what we were doing. And he was approached by Sir Humphrey Wakefield to ask him to say, can I have a model of your Waterbird? Wow. So my dad's lovely Waterbird, one of them, hangs in Sir Wakefield's castle. No. <laughs> Because the Wakefield was thinking, and I wrote to him and said, I'm doing this Amy thing. He, he's just, he, he's got a castle and he's got a few other things, so he, he couldn't be a sponsor. Of course he has. But yes. Of course, yes. Yeah. But he was so lovely in the fact that I was doing this, and as I say, I've got a oh, lovely letter from him. That's amazing. I thought I was joking when I said, no. couldn't you have gotten to say that? The very Sir Humphrey who had the helped Amy Humphrey. Johnson. Uh, no, uh, no sorry, ah. sorry, sorry. His son. His, his grandson. Grandson. His grandson. Ah, so, no, sorry, that, sorry, no, sorry, sorry. That's sorry, what yes. worried me. His grandson. Phew. Yes. Well, even so, it's still a lovely connection. Yes. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. So, okay, so planning the route was a major undertaking. What about the, the aircraft itself? Because uh, what's the gen, normally, the sort of duration of a, of a, of a tiger floth, <laughs> tiger moth, with your, your, your fuel tank above, above the wing there? What, yes. How long would that You've keep you? You've got the fuel tank above. It's meant as a training aircraft. Yeah. So it's only got two and a half hours because basically it was to train people uh, pilots to fly, ready for Spitfires, and to go around in circuits a lot, which is why you've got a fantastic undercarriage, mm. which is also good for me. Yes. <laughs> got big wheels, nice yeah. springy undercarriage. I like it. It's a good aeroplane for me. So that was all what it was built for. The other touring aeroplanes that are in here have bigger fuel tanks because they were built especially for touring. Yeah. So what I had to do for this aircraft was put in two other fuel tanks. So a little round one in the front hold, held another 10 gallons. And then I had a bigger one that was, has actually been down to Australia. This tank has been down to Australia before, uh, flown by a, a male pilot solo down to um, Australia. In a Norman, tiger? In a tiger moth. Wow. Yeah. And it's like a person. Yes. It's shape. It's, it's shape with its yeah. head cut off and it sits in the front seat. Wow. And so this was, and it comes with paperwork because of course paperwork these days in those days, they didn't have to worry about paperwork, whereas now you have to have paperwork to go with your aeroplane and everybody, everything has to be, is it actually authentic? Is it actually able to fly? Whereas in those days, they just put in a big fuel tank and went for it. It didn't matter about the C of G or whether they yeah. sort of, you know, oh, it was a bit lumpy on takeoff, oh, really. 
So this tank had already gone and I thought, right, and I sourced this and this took quite, a, you know, six months to find this tank because I knew it had the paperwork with it. So I knew that the CAA couldn't argue with me because I said, well, it's already been done before, <laughs> so you can't argue with me. That's pretty clever. So you've got all that rigged up. I mean, this already sounds hugely expensive and yeah. this is all done with your own funding. Yes. And well, very notable, solo to Darwin is what yes. you called it. Because unlike an awful lot of these trips, they'll, they'll have chase planes, yes. will have the spares on them and engineers. You yes. literally did this on your own yes. with this aeroplane and yes. nothing else. Nobody else was around with you. No. Again, a little bit bonkers. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but Amy did it that way. Yes. So I had to do it. I had to emulate Amy, didn't I? And there's something about traveling solo by yourself. So I had, uh, Mike, my other half was at home on the, on the internet yeah. helping me and on the end of a phone. Yeah. But when you travel tough, solo... Tough work, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a hero. What a hero. <laughs> yes. But something about, because I love flying by myself, because you have to then, you're in control of your own life. Yeah. And I think that's a very important part for somebody who's dyslexic that may have had a lot of challenges. Mm. You know, this is a real success story yeah. because I'm doing it by myself. And yes, I got to Beirut and people go, oh, you failed. And I go, yeah, see how I failed. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> failure. So yeah. But uh, dyslexia wasn't your only challenge, was it? No. Because you were, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. How, how long ago was that? 2017. So recent. Very recent. And this is actually what happened because I talked about this dream as being someday and one day and then my father got ill and in all of that I just put him into a home and the next week I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. And I had my operation on the 28th of December 2017 and my dad died on the 6th of January 2018. And when you have that kind of calamity, you think, you realise that life is very, very precious. And that's when I thought, right, all the savings, everything, steal, beg, borrow, everything, everything has to go into it. And I have to do this because I suddenly realized with my dad dying and me having breast cancer that, wow, we're on this planet for a very short time. Wow. So that was a, another huge part of your inspiration. Yes. And actually the surgeon was lovely. I had one of the best surgeons on the planet. I, I could not have, he's one of the leading breast cancer surgeons. Uh, I'm quite happy to say I had a double mastectomy and reconstruction there, and he's amazing. You'd never know, wow. would you? You're allowed to look once and then that's it. <laughs> well, it's a nice, so, it's a big flying jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but he was so lovely because I said, you have to get me better for this. And he's really proud of me of what I've done. I said, you have to get me better. And the reason I have the really long hair is because I didn't have to have chemotherapy because they oh. had this amazing test where because my cancer hadn't spread, yeah. they can do a test to see if chemotherapy will help you or if it will actually be more detrimental to your health. And fortunately, I came in the category that chemotherapy wouldn't actually help Gosh. because my cancer hadn't spread. So I'm not even in remission now, I'm cancer free. Oh, wow. The surgeon did such an amazing job, I don't have. I have a better chance of surviving now than you do from cancer. Congratulations, delighted to hear that. Wow, Amanda, what a journey. And we haven't even taken off yet. And I, I must say thank you to all of the people that, you know, the, the, down to the person that wheels you back from the surgery. The, everybody, does, everybody says the surgeons and the oncologists and the nurses. And the person I was, who never gets thanks is, is the porter who wheels you back from the surgery and doesn't <laughs> bump you into anything. 
when you're when you're at the height of your pain. I thought, wow. So everybody who was around me at that time was yeah. absolutely amazing. And talking about inspiration and wanting to flag things up uh, doing this flight, how much of it also was about raising awareness of, of women in aviation? I mean, obviously, you know, you had the Amy Johnsons, you had the Amelia Earharts, yeah. and one or two, as you say, quite wealthy women who, who were yes. able to fly for fun. So in a way, women have always been a fairly intrinsic and notable part of aviation. And you think of the ATA pilots yes. in World War II. Yes. Astonishing number. In fact, Amy Johnson was one of those, wasn't delivering aircraft yes. that you may never have seen before to airfields around Britain. So women have, have always played a huge part in aviation, but do you think it just hasn't been recognized enough? Or, or, it, or what was, what's your reason for wanting to, to raise that profile? My reason is that we're still at 5%. That's that 5% of pilots are women mm. and we need to raise that a little bit and I don't know all of the men that I fly with want more women in the profession so that's a good thing and what happened at the end of the war so at the start of aviation it was if you had money or you could raise sponsorship you could fly that was the thing male female black white pink spots on didn't matter you had to have the money to be able to fly and then the war came along, and like you say, there was these amazing women who did all, all of the ATA work and the Americans that came over and did all the ferrying as well. And then at the end of the war, like so many other jobs, when the men came back, they went, right, the men are having the jobs in aviation and the women can go back to being at home. So they weren't given the opportunity to carry on in the aviation side of things. So our history from there is the problem. And when I speak to women I say, and they say oh yeah I'd love to be a pilot and I say why didn't you and as a kid in school they weren't ever given that sort of thought that mm. they could be they could be a flight attendant so as a woman you can be a flight attendant but why not a pilot mm. so it's our whole ethos that isn't allowing it to be and that's where it needs to be change because one of the reasons I try and encourage women into the aviation you're surrounded by wonderful men you know <laughs> of all these, yeah and, and it, they don't need to be afraid of it hmm. I am seriously there's no magic there's no silver spoon in my cutlery drawer if I can do it <laughs> then, uh, then yeah it's persistence yeah so I'd like to encourage I think we need a we need more than five percent I'm not saying Why, 50%, but more it's than 5%. 5% where you think we are at the moment. Are you talking about commercial pilots? Commercial or? pilots, okay. yeah. I think it's 7% of private pilots are female. Yeah. Because, you know, in, in that area, I think a lot of women are then said, oh, well, I might be able to fly. Yeah. But certainly in the commercial world, it's still so low that I think we need to encourage more. And we need to encourage women into all of aviation, you know, air traffic, operations, all that kind of Engineering. stuff. Engineering. Engineering, absolutely, yeah. STEM. Yeah. And. You hold a commercial license, yes. so what does your commercial flying involve? I know you've been taking passengers up in Tiger Moths, yes. which you, for which you do require a commercial license, yes. which must be Im immense fun. What, what, what other areas of commercial aviation are you involved in? So I did my commercial license when the recession happened, and I got into the holding pools of airlines, but then of course nobody took anybody on, so you're there sort of twiddling your thumbs. And actually. Mm. That was when I became an instructor, and that's how I ended up through the Tiger Moth ah. professional line, because I started teaching people in tail draggers, and then in Tiger Moth, and then did the pleasure flights, and that was how I did it. So I've gone in the charter side of things. So now I fly the jets. So if you imagine the pretty woman with the red carpet and climbing up into the jets, 
And people say, oh, you only fly a small jet. And I go, yeah, I fly the Ferrari of the jet world. <laughs> it's a Citation XLS. Oh, yes. And it can go higher than all the commercial airlines. So it goes yeah. up at 45,000 feet and, wow. and gets to, you know, amazing places. What's the range of those? I mean, are you transatlantic in those no. things? No. no, no, not quite. No, you'd have to do the hop over in uh, okay. Canada and then, and then go on. And yeah. um, we mainly uh, fly in Europe and down to, you know, we do a lot of Nice. Yeah. Uh, and it depends how many passengers, of course. Because the more passengers, the more weight you are, yes. the less fuel you can take. So you have wow. to, it's a bit of a sort of conundrum on that. And now you've done so much in the Tiger Moth. I mean, you've always been flying Tiger Moth. So I think that was your dream was My to, dream. you didn't even want to learn on a nose wheel aircraft, nope. did you? Nope. But I think you had to, didn't you? I had to. Yes. The instructor came along. So we had the fight and he's a lovely instructor. Don't get me wrong. And I, I owe a lot to him. Yeah. But I went to him and I said, I want to learn in that, which was the decathlon. And it was a tail dragon. And he went, no, 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 you'll learn in the Cessna. And I said, no, 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 I want to learn in that. And there was a little bit of a fight. And he went, that's going to cost you a lot of money. It's weather dependent. And you're not going to get your PPL as fast. He said, learn in that. And then I'll teach you in that. Mm, so I went back a bit grumpy. So I learned in the Cessna. And I yeah. love Cessnas. Yeah. You know, I love the small Cessnas. We've, we've been flying in a Cessna today, in a, in a Cessna 172. I still love the small Cessnas. They're lovely airplanes. And now I fly a big Citation jet, yes. Cessna Citation jet. But yes, yeah, so I learned in that, and on the day of my PPL, I passed my PPL, and I went to the instructor, right, teach me in that now. <laughs> so that was how I started. I started very on the day that I passed my PPL. I think that's phenomenal. And how do you find dealing with the, the sort of, the seriousness, if that's the right word, of, of that commercial bizjet flying yes. with the sheer joy of open cockpit flying with the Tiger Moth? Is the other one a bit of an office job? No. No. Not in the charter world. I've been to Finland, I've been to, you know, Nice, I get to fly into Cannes. You can go all day in, these, in this thing. I know, but in a jet, flying, flying over Cannes in a jet and turning up with a jet, you know, with, <laughs> with the VIPs in the back. So I think it's more the people that you fly. I've, I've flown some very interesting people. I can't tell you, of course, because I'd, no, I'd have to eat you and kill you. If you were to tell me, who would you say? Some very famous singers <laughs> oh. who were very, very nice. Great. I'm glad to hear that. But yes, and a few politicians that we won't even go there. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm thinking, but you see, if you're doing commercial flying, you are restricted in, in many ways, aren't you? I mean, yeah. I'm just wondering from the flying point of view, do you just long to get back out and be sitting in your tiger moth? Sometimes. I'm very fortunate in the people that I fly with, we're allowed to hand fly quite a lot of the jet, although it is on autopilot yeah. a lot. So yes, yeah. there is an awful lot of structure and, and in the commercial world, there's a lot of pressure to be there. So these people have hired the jet and you yeah. have to be there no matter what the weather. So when the volcanoes and thunder and lightning and the world's falling apart, you still got to fly and you go, oh, well, actually the aeroplane <laughs> can't fly, so I can't fly. But yes, this is, it's two different separate worlds. Yeah. And of course this now, I would have to say possibly is my greatest love because because we've flown across the Mediterranean, the Alt Pass, so through the Carpathian Mountains. I saw your pictures, absolutely <sighs> stunning. You just, so that, that day, I'd delayed a day because it had been a little bit thundering, a little bit foggy, and the yeah. next day we got up, the fog cleared. We're at the airfield, you smell the grass. I'm surrounded by all these wonderful people that are gonna come up in their small airplanes and fly formation with me and you look down the Alt Pass and it's blue skies, little fluffy clouds, the aeroplane was purring away, you've got that little vibration, I'm flying by myself, and I've got mountains this side, 8,000 feet with snow on the top, wow. mountains this side, 6,000 feet, and I'm flying down this beautiful valley with Dracula's castle, you know, and I, you've got to pinch yourself. Yeah. 
I, I don't even know if anybody's done that in a tiger moth. No. And I just, I still get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now because <laughs> I can remember it and it was such an amazing flight. And, and me and this little aeroplane were, were flying alongside and then they disappeared because they had to go back at the border. So oh, I then had right. to fly by myself. And you just think, yeah, that's probably beats the, beats the jet flying, doesn't it? <laughs> I, 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 just a little, I think. And so with your additional fuel tanks, what were sort of the longest passages you could do? Uh, seven and a half hours. Wow which would be across the Timor Sea. And I only did, wanted to do that once. Seven and a half yes, hours and I only wanted off. to do that once. <laughs> All the rest of my things. So I normally had five or five and a half hours or six hours. And then the seven and a half hours was going to be the last one across the Timor Sea. Goodness me. Because that's a lot. That's a lot of time, because as you can see, she's, she's got no autopilot. No, no, of course. It's all stick and rudder. So, yeah. And she has to be flown at all times. There is no, you, you can't take your hands off a tiger moth. No. They just, especially the older ones, she's got a bit of a, bit of a, a wobbly wing on this side. Right. So you always have to, and if you take your hand off to write something down, the airplane goes, aha, <laughs> and goes off on her own. You can't let like, you come back here. So she's a very physically demanding aircraft to fly. And of course, I had very basic instruments of which I realise now across the Mediterranean, I possibly needed an artificial horizon, which I haven't got. You haven't got an artificial horizon? No. Don't no. most tiger moths? No. No, they don't? No, 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 no. They have, so you've got your basic instruments, you've got your altimeter, yeah. um, your uh, speed. This is your, this is how you tell you whether you're up or down. So you've got turn and slip. Yes. And then you've got rev counter at the other end. I have to have radios in, of course. And it used to have the old P6 compasses which I have got. I've got the original compasses, but they're not very accurate. They're about 30 degrees off. Now, when, <laughs> when I'm flying around 30 England, degrees. I can figure that out. Yes. But when I thought, going down to Australia, I, I need a reliable yeah, compass. Yeah. So I bought a reliable compass, and that was my heading. This is where my GPS is. Of course, I have to take a GPS. You cannot fly these days without a GPS with all the airspace. And a lot of the points that they want to fly, that you have to fly to are GPS points. So you have to oh. have a GPS. But this wouldn't, I, I tried one with an artificial horizon on it, but because the engine is so old and doesn't have shielded harnesses on it, the it electrical, interferes with it. Yeah, the electrical okay. um, magnetic interferes with the actual, comp uh, with the actual uh, GPS. And of course the trusty old stopwatch. And, and down here was my chart. So my charts were down here, and in here was all my first aid kit and sandwiches and all kinds of things, my little bag. Did you have an emergency bag? I mean, did you have a ditching bag? I, I, I sat on, so this is still without the seat in it, so normally it has a seat in it. So I sat on my life raft, which um, goes back because it has to be um, re-gassed re, um, and that. Uh -huh. So I had my life raft that I was sat on. That was your cushion, was it? Like a parachute, cushion, in fact. Yes, yeah. which was not very comfy, I have to say. <laughs> and in fact, it wore out my trousers because it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I have a life jacket on the top. I've got a first aid kit down here. This is where my tracker was. So the Kinetic 6 tracker was amazing. So this is what you saw on the website every 10 minutes. And it's a small little, tiny little tracker. And all it has is a big red button. You, you click it open and you press it and klaxons go off in the offices over in, over in Hereford. <laughs> and when I pressed it for the, the and, and they all get woken up yeah. and they're all going, well, where is she, where is she? And they're all phoning me and of course I'm in the air. Fantastic. So that was um, the thing, this GPS aerial. Um, it has, the aeroplane has an ELT, which is an emer emergency locator beacon. And I also took a personal locator beacon as well. So I had a lot more safety kit mm. than Amy Johnson. Mm. She had a rubber tire and she took a parachute, but she hadn't actually really been trained in the parachute. So would she have actually survived if she had to use the parachute? Well, you didn't have a parachute. I didn't have a parachute because I decided 
for the weight and balance, I'd rather take the life raft because I knew, because she's got such a beautiful gliding profile oh. and I've got a lot of hours and professional hours in tiger moths, I decided to go for help in the water and be able to land anywhere else. On dry land, yeah. yeah. So anywhere else you can normally, even if it's a road, so even if you're in the mountainous area and you're having problems, if you come down, put the tiger moth on a road rather yeah. than getting out on a parachute. So it swings and roundabouts, it's, and there is no right or wrong in that part of it. That was my decision not to take a parachute because that was more weight and also yeah. trying to get out of these things. So you then have the decision, and this is quite a psychological thing that they've realised, which is why they put the ejector seat back there and not have two, uh, one above their head and one in between the legs. They went back to just having one in between, so you don't have to decide. Because uh, when you're in uh, emergency situations, as uh, the, the, the uh, landing on the Hudson, your brain goes, oh, well, what, what decisions have I got to make? So I took away the parachute decision, which meant I had to fly the aeroplane and crash it slowly. And there's a beautiful RAF quote that says, in the event of a misdemeanor, <laughs> endeavor to hit the softest, uh, cheapest looking object in the vicinity at the slowest and most gentlest possible pace. I love that quote. That was, that was beautiful. But uh, were there any scary moments? You mentioned a bird strike, which I think did for your prop yep. spinner. Yes. And, and two engine failures. Two engine failures. Or one was semi-engine failure. Yes. Um, any other nasty moments? Or was it pretty plain sailing? I think for the flying side of things, all the rest of it was what I expected. It was so cold over going over Germany and France. I was absolutely freezing because I hadn't put my thermals on because I thought it was May, I don't need my thermals. So at times I thought I'm going to have to divert or I'm going to have to land in a field because I'm so cold. Um, so that was quite a scary moment. And when I came back over the Mediterranean, I'd had to take off later because of permissions and all that kind of, all the paperwork side of things. So by the time, and again, the weather forecast was supposed to be beautiful. By the time I was getting towards roads, there was nothing. I was just in this goldfish bowl of horrible muck and mist and pollution. And I couldn't see anything. And I've been flying on partial instruments for hours at this point, And I was starting to weave about. And you know that you're beginning to lose the plot at that mm. point. So I thought these, saw these big thunderclouds and thought, that's Turkey. And I know I can't go from Cyprus to Turkey, but I'll survive the telling off if I have to get there. So I headed for Turkey and went round the coast and then came back down to uh, roads that way. Wow. So that was a little bit, it was more a bit of how am I going to survive the telling off when I have to land <laughs> on the ground rather than think. And again, this goes to back the fact that I'd read about all the pioneers. They'd all done this kind of stuff. They knew the thunderclouds were over there or, you know, the rain or the mist is coming out from the valley. So I'd got this in the back mm. of my head mm. that I'd been reading about how they'd navigated through various places. So what's the plan now? Do you, when the time is right, when she's back to full health, pick up the route from Beirut? Or do you start again from London? Well, <laughs> the problem is picking up, if I ship her out to Beirut, I've then got to do five hours of testing of her because she's been taken apart and put and back course, together again. Yes. I'm allowed to do that because of uh, my because of who you are. Because of who, yes, because of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, basically, the owner and they allow me to it, so that's it. Um, so I'd have to do that. And since I've done the Europe route, I thought, 
and I had such fun doing the Europe route, why not do it again? So wow. I might, and, and in cost-wise, it's the same kind of cost. So I thought, well, why not do that? Why not do that again and start again? Well, Amanda, we wish you loads and loads of luck. Uh, it's a beautiful aeroplane. Your story is totally inspiring. Thank and you. thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that was the wonderful Amanda J. Harrison, and we wish her all the luck in the world for getting back up in the air again and to uh, retrace the steps that uh, Amy Johnson set back in 1930 with that flight from London to Darwin. So our next episode is going to be all about air shows. There aren't many of those around at the moment, but we can talk about, we can reminisce about them, find out what is going to be happening this summer with George Smokey Bacon. He heads the British Air Display Association and he's a pilot with the Army Air Corps' historic flight. So that's the next one up. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review and keep uh, telling your friends all about us. Thanks very much. <laughs>